welcome to the Beyond the Sermon podcast, where we take your questions from Sunday's teachings in order to form a dialogue about the scriptures and what God is teaching each and every one of us. Welcome back to the Beyond the Sermon podcast. Here today is Sunday, February 19th, and we are actually in our third week in the Revelation series. So I'm uh, behind a couple weeks. We've had some uh, really busy Sundays here right after service, and I typically record these right after second service. So I've got a few, we've got a few questions to get caught up on here. So today here on this episode, we're going to we're going to take the questions that came in today from Revelation uh, number three from our third weekend. We're in chapter two, verses one through seven here uh, this morning. And so we'll take the questions that, that came in for that and that, and then we're going to get caught up here. So there'll be some episodes being released here into the future and over the next week or so that will uh, we'll get us caught up on some of the really great questions that have come in on the book of Revelation and uh, are asking about maybe some specific teaching positions or understandings or theological positions of the book of Revelation, how we might understand it, how we might apply it, and those kind of things. And so we'll dive into some of that stuff here on the podcast in the coming on the coming episodes uh, as those questions have come in, and I'm sure as those questions will continue to come in. Uh, but here today, we were, we're week three in our series through the book of Revelation, and we were looking at the letter or the message to the church in Ephesus. And so we're in the second section of Revelation. Chapter one is really, it's an introduction to the book. Introduction is a letter because uh, as we've said in week one and week two there, that the book of Revelation, we call it a book, but really structurally um, the way that it would have been understood or received in the first centuries, it's it's a literal letter. John is writing a letter to these seven churches. And so, um, so it has it has an opening, has a greeting, it has um, a, a, you know, the very the very structure of a first century letter. We see it all throughout it. So, in the opening of the letter was chapter one, and so, uh, so we looked at that uh, at chapter one over two different weeks, and then here today we started jumping into the seven messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And there we began with with the church in Ephesus here today, and really as we as we dialed into the church of Ephesus, one of the things that we saw is that Jesus commends them. He commends them for uh, for their for their for their work for their struggle to maintain sound doctrine, and that is a really good thing. That's a really worthwhile pursuit. Why? Because well, as we as we pursue sound doctrine and right theology. Uh, we use the term orthodox theology, and, and how we define orthodoxy is a theological term, is that orthodoxy or orthodox conviction, orthodox belief, is that we hold to, we believe uh, the things that all Christians have believed for all of time. And so when we talk about that, um, our rubric for orthodoxy, our rubric is our statement of faith as a church. And so we've got 10 points in our statement of faith, and and really they are centered not only biblically, but also historically, right? In the historic confessions, if you grew up in a mainline Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, you've probably recited the creeds, maybe the Athanasian Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Um, these are some of the, the the foundational creeds of our faith, and really what those creeds are, are are statements of faith. They're saying, this is what we believe. This is what we stand for. And they were evaluated in community. Those creeds were evaluated in community and affirmed in community. So yes, this is what we, the global uh, church believes, right? And so um, you think of the, the Nicene Creed comes uh, from the Council of Nicaea, 325, 385. 
and um, you've got Nicaea 1, Nicaea 2. Um, and so really what they're doing there is they're landing the divinity. The big issue was the divinity of Jesus. Is he fully God? Is he fully man? There was a theologian, um, that his name was Arius at, at, at that time, and Arius' uh, big phrase or theological phrase was that there was a time when the Son was not. So what Arius believed is that there was a time when Jesus was created, and yet that runs in great contradiction to the scriptures, John chapter 1, uh, that the in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, was with God, all things were created by the through him, and nothing that was created was not created without him. So John tells us right away, right, Jesus is preexistent. Paul goes on, Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, preeminent over all things, which is maybe some confusing language to us in English, but in that moment and in Greek, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is preeminent. He he is over all things, both in time and rank, right? So there was nothing that was before him um, uh, that he created all things. Paul will go on to say in Colossians, and he's he's making an argument in defense of Jesus' supremacy. So, um, so what we see in the Nicene Creed, we land that Jesus, what we call theologically, is the hypostatic union. That is that God, um, that, that Jesus as God, he is fully God and fully man, right? So that in his in His coming to earth, in his earthly life and ministry, he humbled himself. He, as Philippians 2 said, he emptied himself. It's the kenosis of Christ, we call it. Um, and it's this, this emptying of himself, um, that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something literally to be held onto or retained for himself. Instead, he came and took on the form of a servant, took on our form so that he might serve us so that we might be able to be called the sons and daughters of God. So that's what Paul explains in Philippians, right? So so Jesus, fully God, fully man, you may go, oh yeah, of course, that's what we believe. Well, that was tested out and worked out in community at the, Nic- the Council of Nicaea. And Arius' claim that there was a time when Jesus was not is actually was was uh, defeated, was um, found to be heresy, was found to be false doctrine or or wrong doctrine. And um, and so anyone now that teaches, uh, any, any group or sect or denomination that teaches that Jesus really didn't become God until his baptism, or Jesus really didn't become God until he was created to be God, or uh, that, that God adopted Jesus at some point, that he was just a man and then God adopted him, um, those are all expressions of ancient heresy and were found to be heresy. What we believe is that Jesus is the preexistent God that all things are made through him, that he humbled himself, emptied himself, came to earth, uh, was obedient to the point of death on a cross, considered the considered the cross joy, a joy set before him, so that we would be called the sons and daughters of God, so that we could be adopted back into God's family, even though we were rebellious against him. We were the enemies of God, and we have now been brought near to God. Hebrews, we have a high priest who is sympathetic to us, who understands us. God has compassion on us, right? So good theology is important because it tells us about who God is. And we, and we said it this way, uh, specifically in the second service, I, I used a different illustration and I said that, you know, why theology matters is because it tells us about God's character and God's promises only matter if God's, if God's character can deliver on them. And I used a, an illustration there about vows. And when we take vows at our wedding and when I work with young couples that are walking through or preparing for their marriage and we talk about their vows, I always tell them, 
you know, your vows aren't, uh, they're not these, these wishes or these hopes or even promises, right? They're not promises that we go, well, I, I really hope that, they're, that they'll be true someday, right? Um, and they're not this contract. They're not an agreement like we sign when we take a lease out on Toyota Camry or Corolla or whatever, right? If you do this, then I'll do that for you, right? If you keep to these, then I'll keep to those. Um, vows are made as a solemn pledge, they're made as a solemn pledge. They are to be kept. They are not to be broken. They are not conditional. If you do this, then I'll do that. They are, I am going to do this regardless of, of, of what you do, right? This is true about me. I'm making this statement, this declaration that impacts you, but it is founded. It is made and it can be trustworthy because of the nature of my character. See, the, your vows are made in a moment of great joy at your wedding, in a moment of great expectation at your wedding, but they are kept and realized in a moment of great pain and in a moment of great hardship in your marriage. And if the person saying those vows on that wedding day is known to be not trustworthy or capricious or uh, malevolent or manipulative, whatever, right? If they are not known to be trustworthy and loyal, then the vows mean nothing. So if God is not found to be trustworthy and loyal and faithful, then his promises mean nothing. But what do we see in the scriptures? We see this God who is faithful, who is trustworthy, who is loyal. And that's backed up not just by a, a reading of the scriptures, but by our experience of who God is. It's backed up by, by the very cosmos, that the creation declares the work of God, declares the handiwork of God, declares the existence of God. And God's word then reveals God to us specifically, right? So right theology is so important because it teaches us about who God is. And God's character matters because his promises matter. And his promises only matter because his character proves it to be dependable, right? So um, so the Ephesian church, they, were, they held to sound doctrine. They were in a culture in a moment that was swerving left and right and had every other value than the values of the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's, it's a fairly relatable uh, moment for us. I think if we put ourselves in that, our culture is becoming less and less uh, defined by what might be a cultural a, a cultural Christianity, right? And and Christianity is becoming more and more distinct, right? That's a good thing. That's a really good thing for us. That Christianity is becoming more and more distinct. Why? Because the life of Jesus in us becomes more and more distinct. And so Jesus' message to the Ephesian church is, "Hey, you've done well to hold the right doctrine, but you've lost the love you had at first, and." You need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to get back after sharing the hope that resides within you. And so, so Jesus gives them a stern warning, and it's a stern warning that should send some chills up our spine and maybe cause us to pause and consider where we're at and, and what our life is and how we're relating to Jesus and, and those kind of things. And so with that, this question comes in. This first question comes in. It says, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, how does this imply, or does this imply, that works are related to our salvation and that we can lose our salvation? In effect, if you don't do the works, your lampstand will be removed. So it's a really good question. Let me just read Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, Jesus says this, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay, so um, what happens we when we talk when we talk about theology, 
and we talk about reading scripture. We we want to read scripture in light of other scriptures. Now, this verse sounds it's it's very intimidating. It's very it can even be frankly we could say it's it's scary for us, right? You read this and you're like, oh man, this is Jesus saying this. If I don't do the works that I did at first, then then I need to repent and do those things. But if I don't do those things, then my lampstand is going to be refused or, or removed from me. Now we have to understand, we have to ask, how did the original audience understand this? Did they understand this verse individually, as individuals, or in a corporate setting? So the first question is, well, who is this letter to? This letter is to the Ephesian church. It's to a group of Christians. Okay, so it's not to it's not to a specific individual, right? Jesus isn't saying, hey, John, or hey, Tim, um, or insert whatever name you want there, right? You stop doing the works you did first. If you don't keep doing those works, then I'm going to remove your lampstand. It's not, that's not the message here. The message in its context is to a group of believers, which is which makes a church, right? So it's to the Ephesian church. So it's to this corporate entity, the corporate relationship of the believers as the church. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, I, uh, you know what? There is victory for you in me. It's what, it's how we understand verse seven to the one who conquers. It's this military metaphor here to the one who conquers, the one who continues to struggle to walk and live faithfully. I will grant uh, to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus reminded them, here is the victory that has been extended to you through me. Now, um, if, 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 if Rome, if revelation here teaches us that actually salvation is by works, well, then what do we do with Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine? Paul says, for salvation is not by works so that no man can boast, but instead it is a gracious gift of God by faith and faith alone, right? So does Jesus contradict Paul? Does Paul contradict Jesus? Acts chapter four, believe in the name of Jesus and you will be saved, right? Not believe and do the right works and you might be, and you'll be saved. It's believe and you will be saved. Believe in the name of Jesus and you'll be saved. And so when we understand the process of salvation, we understand that it's by faith alone and by grace alone, right? That God is doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And that is what we would call systematically true. It's called the branch of systematic theology. We're looking to see is a concept present throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11, what does it say in the hall of faith? It was it by their works that they were saved? No, it was by their faith, their future forward faith. The Hebrews 11 are talking about the saints of the Old Testament. And, and so Abraham and so on and so forth um, are listed in that, in that section. And they're saying it's by their faith that God would save them, that it was, their righteousness was counted for them, right? So their righteous, the righteousness of God was, was bestowed upon them, not by their works, not by their actions, but by their faith. So Hebrews 11 shows us that as well, that salvation is by faith and by faith and grace alone. It's an action that God does for us that we could not do for ourselves. So Revelation chapter two, verse five cannot mean something that would then would then contradict the rest of the Bible. Cannot mean something that would contradict the rest of the scriptures. So throughout the rest of the scriptures, we see firmly that salvation is by faith and by grace alone, right? Not by works so that no man can boast, that no person could boast. 
And, um, and so, and honestly, we would ask that this, right. This other question would come up and say, so if I can earn my salvation, if I can work my way into heaven, the cross is useless. If I could earn my salvation, I do not need the cross. I do not need Jesus going to the cross. I do not need God humbling himself, taking on human form and giving his life up for me. I do not need that because I am able to earn my salvation, right? So the very nature that Jesus, the very reality that Jesus, that he he gave up his heavenly position and, and being fully God, entered into our world fully man, being fully God, fully man at the same time, yet emptied himself in his, of his divinity somehow. There's this divine mystery there. So that we would have a high priest that is is sympathetic to us, right? That he understands what we're going through, that he has compassion on us, not because he sinned. He is sinless. He is the God-man of Daniel chapter 7, the son of man. It's what Jesus claims, Mark chapter 2. Uh, I am the son of man, he says. Um, and so he is this God-human of Daniel chapter 7 who is the one who is promised to come and redeem and restore what is broken, to send the Messiah, right? And so so this is Jesus. If we can work our way into heaven, if we can work our way back into God's good graces, we don't need Jesus. But the very gospel, the very New Testament teaches us we did need Jesus. Jesus did do this for us because we can't work ourselves back into God's good graces. We can't earn our salvation. So Revelation chapter 2 verse 5 cannot mean something to us that it did that violates the scriptures and it cannot mean something to us that it did not mean to the context that it was written to. So it's written to a church context. So what John is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, is this very reality. If you do not stay faithful, one, to sound doctrine, you've done that well, church in Ephesus. You've held the sound doctrine. Good job. But if you if you if you drift from sound doctrine, well, now you're not teaching the gospel. And if you're not teaching the gospel, you're not declaring the hope of Christ. And if you're not declaring the hope of Christ, you're going to lose spiritual influence. You are going to become ineffective, right? Your lampstand will be removed from you. Jesus is the one who makes our works effective, right? Jesus is what he says in John chapter 15. He says, uh, you can do nothing. You cannot, you cannot, uh, you cannot do anything literally without me, right? If we yearn to have fruit that lasts, John chapter 15, we must stay, uh, we must abide in Christ. We must stay connected to Christ. And those who do stay connected to Christ will bear fruit that lasts is what Jesus says in John chapter 15. So John, Jesus is reminding them of that truth in this passage. And he's saying, look, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. I'm the one who, who uh, you know, helps you. I'm the one who tends to you. I'm the one who cares for you. But I'm also the one who, who you know, causes spiritual influence, right? Jesus is, is the one who is, who is making our, our good works that he's prepared for us. Ephesians 2, 10, 11. He's prepared for us right, to be effective, eternal fruit that lasts, right? It's not, again, it's not of our efforts. We are to walk in faithfulness. We are to cooperate with God in his plans, and God works out our cooperation and our obedience for something far bigger than we could ever affect or impact on our own. So what Jesus is saying here to a church, he's saying, look, you've lost the joy of sharing me with others around you. Get back to it. Get back to sharing of the hope that resides within you. First uh, Peter chapter three verse fifteen. Share that hope that resides in you, and 
as you share that hope that resides in you, it will, it will build back up in you and you will conquer. You will remain faithful. And, and as you remain faithful, your hope is built up in you. And as your hope is built up in you, because Jesus is victor and we're sharing in his victory, your faithfulness continues to go, right? And we are reminded of the depth of the victory that we experience and share in Jesus. And so, um, and he reminds us there, chapter two, verse seven, of what awaits, the victory that awaits. He gives us an image of that, right? You who are persevering, you who are conquering, you who are walking faithfully, not because of anything that you've done, but because of the life that is in you, remember, even as you persevere faithfully in the midst of hardship, even as you continue to share the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus with those who do not yet believe, you are being reminded of the victory that is waiting for you. Keep going, stay faithful, and one day you will experience the fullness of that victory that you experience in part here and now. So does Revelation 2, 5 uh, teach salvation by works? Um, absolutely not. It does not. If we read it uh, stand as a standalone verse, it can be really confusing. So that's why, again, we need to read the Bible in context. And a text cannot mean something to us today that it did not mean to them and then, right? And so when we talk about this, this, uh, this action of good works and that the love that they lost at first— Again, we're talking about their their passion to make disciples, and so this this next question comes in and asks us this uh, specifically about how we are to uh, how we are to share, right? So uh, this question here: Is it enough to act in a Jesus like manner, or do we need to preach the Bible? I try to do them at the same time, but sometimes the words are not there for me. Uh, this is a phenomenal question, right? Um, so. Francis of Assisi is often attributed to this quote, which he did not say. <laughs> um, so if you ever look it up and it's like St. Francis of Assisi, um, it's attributed to him, but we actually know that he didn't say it. We actually don't know where it came from. Um, and so the, the phrase goes like this. Um, Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Right. So what it's getting at is uh, this idea that Peter talks about, First Peter chapter three fifteen, that uh, we are to be prepared to give a defense. The Greek word there for defense is apologia. It's where we get the English word apologetics or apologetic. Um, you are to be prepared at all times to give a defense, an apologia, of the the hope that resides within you. So what Peter's reminding them in as he was writing to that audience. Uh, that was living in the first century in Asia Minor at the same uh, around the same time that John is writing. It's actually John's probably writing uh, a, ye- a few years, maybe twenty or so years later than when Peter writes. But um, John, Peter is writing First Peter three fifteen. He's writing to a group of Christians that are being harassed. They've literally been pressed out. Um, they've had to find new homes and new living situations because of their faith in Christ. They're they are facing social opposition. And he says, be prepared at all times to give a defense of what? The hope that resides in you. So what does that mean? Well, your life is to be reflective of the hope that is in you. It means you are to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. You are to be filled with peace, patience, kindness, joy, love, gentleness, self-control. Right? You're to be filled with these things. Why? Because it's what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. If you are staying close to Jesus, if you are abiding in relationship in Jesus, both uh, intellectually, right, holding to sound doctrine, who is God, who is God matters, uh, and you are uh, emotionally connected, right, you are experiencing the presence of God, you're feeling it, 
And you are in community. You've got people who are building you up, spurring you on, right? This that three-legged stool that we talked about this morning. That when when you're walking in Christ, it should be evident in your life. The way that you act, or more specifically, the way that you react to situations. Are you known as a person of abundant patience? That doesn't mean that you don't lose your temper or lose your cool, but do you lose it in the same way that everyone else who is not a believer loses it around you? Do you have a different perspective on things, right? That when, um, you know, when, you're, when your child's sports team, when they lose a game and everybody is, you know, so sad about it, and you're like, hey, guys, it's okay. Like, we have a different perspective on this, right? Are you encouraging them in those ways? And people go, oh, wait. Like, you have peace, you have contentment about this, this big disappointment. It could be at work, right? You didn't make your third quarter numbers or, uh, the, you know, your boss is being is, is really pressuring you. But if you only find your identity in work, man, that's going to that's gonna really wreck you. But if your identity is in Christ, you, you interact and you react in those moments differently. Or you should. You should react differently in those moments than others around you. So in that way... Yes, your life is to always be is to always be a defense, is to always be an apologetic, is to always be declaring the goodness of the of Jesus, the hope that resides within you. But what we saw in the Acts series when we walked through the book of Acts, if you just sit down and you read the book of Acts, um, yes, their lives were showing that there was something different, but then their words had to profess what was different, right? So, so yes, we, do we need to preach the Bible? Yes, we do. We need to preach the, the scriptures. We also need to just be timely about those things, right? So it's probably why, you know, street corner preachers are not all that effective in evangelism. Doesn't mean that they're not effective at all. No, I'm sure that there's a few people that they're, they've come to faith in Christ uh, through the, the work of, of street corner preachers, you think of those guys that, uh, or those people that stand on the street corner with a bullhorn and they're yelling, you know, uh, repent, the end is near, that kind of thing. Like, I'm sure that it, it works, it brings some people into the kingdom. But what's far more effective is that when somebody sees my life and they go, hey, what's, what's different about you? Well, if I don't share with my words what's different about me, what's, oh, well, I'm more patient. Uh, well, yeah, you're more patient, but why are you more patient? Why, how, how have you grown in patience? It's because Jesus has changed you and he is changing you, right? When someone's marriage is on the rocks and they go, you know what? Your marriage seems to be really stable. And you go, you know, my marriage has been really tough. Uh, Every marriage is really tough, but let me share with you what's kept it alive for us. What's kept us going, how we uh, are, are working through things. It's because Jesus is changing us, right? You know? When, when you're in this moment and everyone else is distraught because, again, maybe there was this large goal that you were shooting for and you didn't make it, you didn't hit it, and everyone else is, is, is severely disappointed, maybe even to the point of, of significant anxiety. And you're sitting there going, you know what? I feel this disappointment with you, but it's going to be okay. And you're like, well, how can you process this in this way? Everyone else is losing their minds. And you go, well, because, because of my faith in Christ. Because I know that Jesus will provide for me. And I, this is hard and this is going to be tough. But, but Jesus gives me peace even in these moments. And so we need our lives to demonstrate 
uh, the validity of our inner faith, right? Our public lives demonstrate the validity of our inner faith. However, our public lives are fueled by the faithfulness of our private lives. So if we're not, if we're not putting Jesus in, we're not going to be able to give Jesus away, right? If we're not allowing the, the Holy Spirit through God's word to transform us, to speak to us, to call us out and call us up into the righteousness of Christ— if we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to do that, then then our perspectives and our actions are not going to be changed. They're not going to reflect more of Jesus. And so we want our lived experience to reflect Jesus, but we also need to explain the hope that's in us through words, right? So we we declare it with our lives and we declare it with our words. And then when we get to the the preaching of the Bible, like, yeah, we got to bring scripture into it, but often that comes that comes as, a, as almost a third point, right? Your, your, your living testimony is first point. Your verbal testimony is the second point, right? Somebody has seen something in you that's different, okay? They ask about it or you engage about it through your verbal testimony. That's second point. And then you go, well, hey, you know what? If you want to know more about this Jesus guy, if you want to know more about God, like, would you want to read the Bible with me? You know, maybe you want to talk about some of these things. Maybe, hey, there's a study at my church or those kind of things, right? So so even preaching the Bible, yes, it's, but it's almost a third layer, right, where, again, we can uh, we point back to Jesus there and, uh, and we show people, okay, this is who God is. This is what he's all about. But you've seen it in me, not because I'm perfect, but because Jesus is making a difference in me. And you've heard me explain it to you in my words. So, so yes to all of those things. We need, we need our, our life to match our words. We need our words to explain our life. And when our words and our life give a favorable impression of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we open the Bible with people and we begin to point them to the scriptures. John chapter 1, verse 44, uh, Philip comes to Nathaniel, uh, the brothers, and Philip goes, uh, Philip says, uh, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel uh, famously says, um, where is he from? Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? He uh, he famously throws shade on Jesus because Nazareth was, Nazareth was this podunk backwoods town that uh, nothing important came from Nazareth. And, uh, and J- Philip's response is, come and see. Come and see Jesus. So do our lives beckon people to come and see Jesus? Do our words give clarity to the fact that Jesus is the one who has given us a hope that does not fade? And then are we pointing people to the scriptures to show them so that they would come and see Jesus, so that they would see Jesus clearly, right? So those three things work in concert together. So uh, those are just some great questions here on Revelation chapter 3. The Ephesian church, they held fast to sound doctrine. Let's hold fast to sound doctrine in the waves uh, and in the in the moment of great cultural change, right? They experienced it. We're experiencing it. Let's work to hold fast to sound doctrine. Let's be faithful there. Let's also not lose the love that we had at first. Let not let our love grow cold. Instead, let us continue to give away the joy of Jesus that is in us, right? So that as we walk with God, we know God and are known by God and are making God known as we go. So uh, thanks for these questions. Love uh, love talking about these things and just uh, love the discussion that has come up here as we, as we dial into and walk through the book of Revelation. And that is what we are all about as we seek God's word and, and yearn to grow and be known and know God 
all together in community. So hope you have a great week. And uh, we again, we will get after some more of these questions that came in before we'll get caught up here on the Revelation series. And we'll see you next Sunday. <laughs>